You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Laura Lipman on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called Dream Girl. And boy, what an unsettling read this is. And I mean that in in all of the the great ways that uh, that a book can can leave you shaken a little bit and and you know wondering if the world really is a good place to live in or not. <laughs> and you know, in the you know, as we're getting into the hot days of summer, we want to kind of curl up under the air conditioning with a great book. Dream Girl is a fantastic one to do that. So this must be on your to be read list. Go grab it today. It's out available everywhere when you're hearing this show. And uh, I'm excited to talk about it today. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Laura, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? It goes back many years to when I was five years old. My father was at that time part of the uh, White House press corps for the Atlanta Constitution. And and he had a, you know, a a portable manual typewriter. And I sat down at my, I sat down at my dad's typewriter and I just began pounding on the keys and I didn't know how to even read or write at the time. I knew one word. I knew how to spell the word pig. I don't remember why or how. And I just pounded out all of this gibberish on different pages. And then I stapled them together and I drew illustrations. And I told people that the reason they couldn't recognize the words was because I'd written it in caveman language. And my mom actually saved that. And that little book that I made when I was five years old is in a shadow box that hangs over my desk in my home in Baltimore. I love that so much. Um, so your your father was a journalist. I, I didn't realize that. Uh, you followed in his footsteps in, in the early part of your career. Is that right? Yeah. Um, uh, I was a journalist for 20 years. And I worked first in Texas at the Waco Tribune Herald in the San Antonio Light. And then in 1989, I got to go to the only place I wanted to go, which was home, the Balti- you know, the Baltimore Sun in Baltimore. And I got to work with my dad. We we overlapped. Well, technically I was at the afternoon paper and he was at the evening paper, but then the two were combined. And so my dad even my dad and I even technically worked together for several years. He took a buyout in nineteen ninety five and I stayed at the paper until two thousand and one. And by that time, I had started writing novels on the side. I was writing a book a year while working at a pretty demanding day job. And in 2001, I got to go out on my own and and start writing novels full time. That's uh, – to to not only – um, look up to your father, like I'm sure that you did, and and to to want to 
pursue the same sort of uh, of career that he did, but then to actually get to work with him, what a gift that uh, that's something that that people rarely get to do. No, it was pretty great. I, I really did appreciate it. And my father was my father was a very well respected editorial writer and columnist in Baltimore. He was known for his vast knowledge of presidential history and also the history of just presidential elections. There were even, you know, there was something called Littman's Law. Although that Littman's Law was broken by Bill Clinton. My my dad once had a theory that you couldn't become president on your first try. You had to make one serious attempt and then it was on the second attempt that most people were elected. Um, yeah, I was really proud to be his daughter and I'm really glad that I got to work with him even if it was just for a few years. Laura, I've I've known several novelists who uh, began their career or spent time in their career in journalism and I'm always fascinated by journalists who become novelists because I I see um a really um interesting uh toolkit that you acquire as a journalist. Um, do you find that your time in journalism has helped you as a novelist? Are there tools that you picked up, um, things that that you learned from journalism that help you be a better fiction writer? Several things. First of all, you learn to meet deadlines and you learn not to romanticize writing. If you work at a daily newspaper, you're going to do a lot of writing when the muse is not present because the muse is almost never present in a writer's life. So you learn these very practical to, practical skills. But the other thing about being a journalist is that you learn that just because you don't know about something at 8 o'clock in the morning doesn't mean you can't know quite a bit about it by 6 o'clock in the afternoon. And I had a job where this is one of the more extreme examples, but I came to work one day and it was like, oh, we've had this massive water failure at the plant that services all of Baltimore. You have to write about it. And so over the course of the next eight hours, I had to understand how water got to our homes. I had to get, do a pretty deep technical dive in order to be able to write this story to explain the failure. And so that helps you understand that as you, be, as you go into fiction writing, you're not limited to your life story. You're not limited to your autobiography. That yes, write what you know about, but that doesn't mean write what you know about right now. It could be write what you know about after you go out and do a little bit of research. And so I thought that was something that was very liberating because if I had been left to my autobiography, there wasn't even enough material for one book. I, I've never written, you know, that classic novel that's really just a version of my life. I love that. That is uh, that is such great advice that, you know, we hear the the write what you know so often. And uh, you're right. That doesn't have to be lived experience in the in the sense of, you know, that you have to walk out this story for 10 years or whatever um, that, that, that someone needed to hear that. I don't know who that it was. It probably me. But that was that was fantastic. Um, I've heard that same um, when I ask journalists that same type of question, you know, what, what did you learn as a journalist that helps you as a fiction writer? Every person I've ever asked that uh, has said learning to write with a deadline. And, you know, as someone that's not a journalist, um, I would think 
that your first answer would be, you know, learning to uh, to see a story from a different angle than everyone else is seeing it. Because, you know, in a big city, you may have three or four daily newspapers and everyone may be reporting on the same story, but everyone has a different perspective. But invariably, everyone says learning to write on a deadline is the most important thing. That is fascinating to me, but you're absolutely right. The muse rarely shows up. So learning to write without, you know, her pesky self around is that that's pretty fantastic advice. I hope so. I mean, I'm I'm pretty down to earth. I do teach writing and I encourage my students to figure out how to break the work down into manageable chunks. I mean, if you sit down and say I'm going to write a novel, sometimes it's just too much. So how about I'm going to write a thousand words a day, or even I'm going to spend X number of hours in my seat working today. Small things that you can manage day by day, and they will accrue. Uh, Jamie Attenberg, a novelist that I know in my second hometown of New Orleans, I'm going to have to answer the door. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. That's fine. Go ahead. So sorry about that. That wasn't supposed to happen. Um, <laughs> anyway, all right. Jamie Attenberg in New Orleans is, is a novelist friend, and she created a project that has really, it's been written up by the Associated Press recently. It's called A Thousand Days of Summer. And the idea is that you're just going to sit down and write, you know, write a thousand words every day. And if you do that for a month, you can have a lot of words. It's pretty amazing. You can write a third of a novel if you if you keep at it. So I'm all for demystifying it. Um, for years, I've talked about <laughs> my passion project. I don't know if I'm ever going to get a chance to do this. I, I'm I'm big on exercising. I really love it. And I have been working out with a trainer for maybe 15 years. Wonderful young man. I mean, he's, you know, I met him when he was sort of fresh out of college. And now he's married with two kids and he has his own business. And he's pretty terrific. And we talk a lot about the overlaps between what we do and how we love to write a book together that shows how the values that you bring to a workout regimen can also be the values that you you bring to writing. You know, for example, don't get hung up on equipment. You really don't need that much stuff. You don't you don't need fancy stuff to go for a run. You just need a pair of running shoes and you really don't need that much to write. People get obsessed with, "Oh, do I need to use Scrivener? Do I need to use this soft like 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 the software is going to make a difference." No. And a big part of writing, like a big part of exercising is showing up on a regular basis and you know knowing when to take breaks and knowing when you should be pushing yourself and knowing how you should be feeding yourself you know writers need to read well that's one step that i sometimes find some people skipping is the reading part and it, it's fascinating that there are people who think they can write books when they don't like reading them that much but they are out there Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. 
from the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let Plot Pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off Plot Pins. PlotPins.com Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Oh, yeah, they, they definitely are. Um, Laura, you started writing uh, fiction while working at your day job as a journalist. What was that initial pull that uh, that made you want to start writing that first novel? Fiction was always the plan. The newspaper life was the pragmatic solution. I wanted to be a full-time writer. I didn't want to teach English. I didn't want to go to grad school and get a master in fine arts and then teach creative writing. I wanted to write full-time. So having a newspaperman for a father, it was very natural to find a newspaper job. But I was always thinking about trying to write fiction um, in my 20s. I worked on short stories on my own. I eventually found my way into a writing workshop 
run by Sandra Cisneros, who was a very important mentor to me. By my early 30s, I was working on what would become my first novel, which was published, I think, I think it was 37 when it was published. And so that was a bit of a journey, but I started on it and I finally, I must have finished it in 1994. It took a year to find an agent. And then when the agent, who is still my agent to this day, Vicky Bajour, sold it, it was another two years to publication. So that's why my first book comes out in 97. And at the time, it was sort of accepted wisdom that crime writers, mystery writers, needed to be able to produce books at a, a book a year pace. And it was also at that time, the conventional wisdom that a series was the best way to go. So I accepted both of those ideas. And I was like, well, how am I gonna write a book a year? And I'm gonna get up every morning before I go to work and work on my novel. And then whatever happens at my job, my daily fiction writing can't be derailed. Because things happen at newspapers, you know, right. things blow up, literally, you get last minute assignments. <laughs> but if I, I would talk about that time in the morning, the way some people think about how you save money, you know, if you want to save money, the advice is take it out of your check before you get your check, have it be automatically deposited somewhere. So I was kind of doing that with my time. I was giving myself the time off the top and then I went to work and anything could happen. Always, always, always. The dream was to be a full-time novelist. I remember in, let me get the year right. It was in 1995. So I'd sold my first book and I hadn't published it yet. And I had lunch with an ex-boyfriend when I was on assignment in Austin, Texas. And he said, what's your five-year plan? And I said, mm, five years, I want to be a full-time novelist. Actually, it would have been 1996 now that I think about it. And I haven't even published my first book yet. And I'm like, in 19, you know, I want to be a, I want to be a full-time novelist in five years. And he laughed. He laughed. He's like, who doesn't, Laura? But by 2001, I was a full-time novelist. There was a lot of luck in that, but there's also a lot of determination. And again, that very basic lesson of showing up every day to do the work. The the idea of you, you said that you accepted the um, the conventional wisdom that you needed to be on a book a year um, basis and you needed to write a series. Is that when Tess Monahan came into your life? Yes. Well, I, yes. And I had I, I had a colleague down at the San Antonio newspaper where I worked in the 80s who once said, you know, who has a great life. That Tony Hillerman guy has a great life. You know, he just writes detective novels about a character in an interesting place, that would be something cool to do. So I sort of had that little flicker of an idea in my mind. I loved reading series. At the time, I was reading Sarah Koretsky and Sue Grafton and Julie Smith, um, also Walter Mosley. You know, so I liked, I really liked series fiction. I mean, this is a topic that just came up today in a small group of writers with whom I communicate through Twitter DM. And we were talking about some people in our field who are very cranky and, and will complain in public about their careers, which I find strange on a couple of levels. Uh, just on a sheer marketing level, I would be like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't ask people to think of you as a failure. And I'm talking about whether it's 
you know, oh my gosh, I, I my book got dropped. Or, you know, there's some people in writing who they'll get upset because they didn't make number one on the New York Times list. Like, <laughs> heck, you know, if I'm if I'm number two, I'm gonna throw myself a parade. That would be a great thing. I just don't understand why why it's almost like a marketing decision. Why would you ask people to perceive of you as failing? Right. I don't get that. I mean, I might have that conversation privately with friends when I've had disappointments or setbacks, but I wouldn't make it part of my public discourse. But the other thing I hear a lot too is like, you know, and it's, they're not wrong. People will be like, I'm good. I write really good books and I'm not successful and I'm grumpy about it. And most of the successful writers I know have had to change up the game at some point. They've had to do something a little bit different not just because of market forces, but because for whatever reason, what they were doing wasn't finding an audience. So, I mean, you can keep doing it. You can keep writing the same kind of book that is considered good, but isn't finding an audience, which therefore makes it difficult for publishing to stand by you. I mean, it is a business. Books do need to sell a certain amount to be viable for the publisher. I don't think it's wrong for publishers to ask writers to write books that people want to read. And I, you know, remember when Nan Talese said that the audience for serious fiction in the United States was, you know, maybe 12,000 books, I mean, 12,000 readers. Yet there are serious, challenging books that break out and find audiences. There's a lot of bad luck. I, I've seen some people have terrible luck and things that are very unfair. But in what kind of life is there not bad luck? And who has ever, you know, gone through life without having to deal with some unfairness? So I really wonder at people who, on the one hand, are like, well, I'm good. And why don't I have a better career? Who don't look at it and say, what could I do differently? And I'm not saying that people should write to the market. You definitely shouldn't write to the market because the market changes too quickly. So if you like, cast your eye on what's a super successful book right now, you might be able to capitalize on it. But I had a former publisher who used to say, nothing is as big as the mothership. So when there's a huge book and you write a book in the style of that huge book, there's no way you're going to be bigger. Right. Um, so I, 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 I've gotten kind of lost in my own thoughts, but I do think it's important to pay attention to the market if you write commercial fiction. I write commercial fiction. That said, that said, and now I'm going to completely contradict myself, the one thing that's most important for me as a writer is I got to change it up every time. I cannot write similar books twice in a row. It's amazing that I wrote seven series books back to back. And even those began to change and get different. And they're now 12 Tess Monaghan books. And I would argue they're very different from where they started. But I haven't written about my series character for six years. In part because I don't know what to do with her. Ever since she had a kid, she kind of flummoxes me. And I'm the one who gave her the kid, but I still don't know what to do. Um, in 2019, I published a book that had a pretty charmed life. Lady in the Lake was a commercial success, a critical success, 
it's sold to Apple TV, where it always ha already has a series commitment with major movie stars in it. Really nice. It was historical, if you consider 1966 historical, and I guess we have to now. Right. It was big. It was a broad canvas with a ton of characters and a ton of issues. And the argument could have been made that I should do something like that again. And I can't do that. And if anything, I have to do a 180. So having written this big, juicy book and set in the past with all these stories and all these characters and what did I decide to do? I was like, I want to write the most claustrophobic book I can imagine. <laughs> I want to be stuck in, and, and, and furthermore, take the risk of, because it's a big risk to write a novel about a novelist because it's really easy to lose your way and fall into the trap of this super inside baseball stuff. And I think the only reason I had the confidence to tackle this book is because Lady in the Lake, almost by accident, really was not by design, became a newspaper novel. And newspaper novels are also incredibly risky when they're written by former newspaper people because we do tend to romanticize and not glamorize, kind of the opposite. But boy, we love our newspaper stories and we loved our newspaper lives. And there have been some really bad newspaper novels written by newspaper people. Oh, yeah. People. Oh, yeah. Some great ones, too. Hyacin, Carl Hyacin is, you know, one of the best. Carl Hyacin, when he wrote Basket Case, he saw it coming. He saw the way this business was going, and he was prescient. So I'm a huge fan of his. But having gotten away with a newspaper novel by accident, I guess I always thought, well, maybe I'll get away with this novel about a novelist. Because even though it is about a novelist, and even though it's a lot about the writing life, what it's really about is what happens when circumstances force you to spend a lot of time with yourself, and you have reason to wonder if you have caused some kind of egregious psychic injury to someone else, and if that could be the reason for some mysterious things that are happening to you right now if those things are indeed happening and they're not delusions wrought by your painkillers or the fact that you might be <laughs> going down the road to dementia, which took one of your parents. Right. Well, as you said, in, in dream girl, you, you write a novel about a writer. And that is one of the most delicious things when, when, is, when it's done right. Um, you know, the, the inside baseball is, is kind of what we're all looking for. Um, if done correctly, um, where when you decided that this was going to be the scenario for the book, um, how did you set out to, um, or, or did you lay ground rules for yourself? You know, I, I understand that these are the pitfalls that could happen when writing a book like this. Did you set parameters for yourself and say, you know, this is something I will do, this is something I won't do? Um, did you did you lay a a, a map out for yourself? I think one of my rules was that I would never show Jerry's work because the second I tried to include an excerpt from one of Jerry's novels or short stories, I think that people would then be like, well, this doesn't read like a literary novel to me, or I don't see why this book would have become a, a big bestseller. So you just had to accept it 
on the facts that Jerry is a literary writer who's won important prizes and wrote one big successful book that was published in the early 21st century. I read a lot of profiles of writers, both of his generation, which is he's a late boomer like me, but I also know a lot about the lives of the writers of a previous generation whom my character reveres. At one point he even says, I don't consider myself to be of my generation. I really belonged with Philip Roth and John Updike and Saul Bellow. I mean, he clearly <laughs> thinks of himself as a great man. Right. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't, you know, Roth admitted, Roth let his jealousy over the Nobel be known. He really expected to get that phone call and he didn't. And Roth is one of the big writers in my life. And I had read everything he'd written and I'd read his own autobiography. So I felt like I was really interested in, um, this idea that you see in Roth, you see in Eudora Welty, I'm pretty sure I quoted it in the book and I probably won't quote it right, but Welty at the end of her slender little memoir wrote something about how it's a sheltered life, but it was a daring one because all great daring starts from within. You know, I'm kind of sitting on the sidelines for most of the great literary quarrels and feuds of our time because I'm a genre writer, but I'm someone who reads a lot of literary novels. I know the world. I was a judge for the National Book Award. So I think I've got some standing for my observations about literature. And one thing that has fascinated me is first of all, how often a novelist, almost always a man, <laughs> will <laughs> write this essay. And the essay is like, this is how it should be done. Like Raymond Chandler did that with The Simple Art of Murder. And I really struggle with Raymond Chandler's The Simple Art of Murder because yes, he is one of the greats of our field, but I think his argument where he names names, he's unkind to Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers. And right. I, I think you don't have to say your way of doing things is the way of doing things. But we see that with Chandler. We saw it with Tom Wolfe. He wrote, you know, we need to have these big Dickensian novels again. And then he published Vampire of the Vanities. There's another writer whose name I always forget who did the same thing. And then, of course, Franzen did it. Franzen wrote a piece about the novel should be this. And shortly after that, he published the correct, not, maybe not shortly, but he published the corrections subsequent to that. So I'm kind of fascinated by this idea of people who say the novel should be this. But one place where my character, loathsome as he is, and I agree, is that I think fiction should largely be a work of imagination. Donald Westlake was a huge hero of mine. I, I love the fact, I don't love the fact that Donald Westlake died, but I love the fact that when he died, it was so hard to pin down how many books he had written. And especially because there were some, I think, that he wanted to be lost for the ages. There is a generation of writers in my field in crime fiction, Donald Westlake, um, Ed McBain, Evan Hunter, those are two names for the same writer, even Larry Block to a certain extent. They broke in at a time where to make a living, you had to write a lot, a lot. And so they yeah. did. And I have two books by West. Obviously, Westlake is best known for his Dortmunder books, 
which were about uh, this kind of convivial, not always successful thief. But he wrote two books about media. Trust me on this and baby would I lie. I think I've got the titles right. And they were fantastic. And I said earlier that former newspaper people sometimes write really dreadful newspaper novels. Boy, Westlake wrote well about the media and he really got it. And I had a chance to meet him in a conference and he's just like, how do you know that stuff? And he didn't do a lot of research. And what he said to me, and it was such great insight, because I became a novelist so I could make things up. But I also believe that if you think hard and deeply about the characters and the situations that you create, you're going to get more right than you get wrong. And that was like a great license to me. I think as a former journalist, I needed someone to say to me, you don't have to do so much research. Some is good. I do some. And I believe in getting some things right. Um, but at the same time, I just want to make stuff up. And I'm a big believer, like Jerry Anderson is in the novel, that things come from our imaginations. We make stuff up. We're not writing thinly veiled autobiography. We're not right. writing exhaustively researched histories, although those are two perfectly valid approaches to fiction. They're just not my approach. And so the ground rule was we were never going to see Jerry's work. We're not even going to hear very much about it. We know what Dream Girl was about, but it's basically like a three line. It's about a short-lived romance between a man and a woman, and the woman's about 15, 16 years younger than he is. We know that he's written one novel that's inspired by the, the not very good marriage of his mother and father, and that that novel has hurt his mother badly. He's working on a novel that might be set in Germany. Um, we're, we're real vague. It's really vague because I felt like the more you saw of the work, the more the reader would then really think too much about. Who, and, and I also really didn't want people to play this guessing game of who is Jerry Anderson because he's everybody and nobody. And that was important to me. And people, people like to tease me now because I was being somewhat farcical when I added in my author's note that if you want to see the writer that Jerry Anderson most closely resembles, look at the author photo on this book. I'm obviously not Jerry Anderson, but then at the same time, we go back to the old Flaubert line about Madame Bovary, c'est moi. I mean, I'm everybody in my books. So yeah, I kind of am Jerry Anderson too, even in, <laughs> and I don't like him very much. So it's hard to say that. What? Since you brought it up, I'll, I'll I'll ask you this question. What do you think about the divide between literary fiction and genre fiction? And just and because you write um, not for the market uh, or not you know to the market, but your do, do you think it's a fair um, assessment that, that people divide literary fiction and genre fiction. Do you, do you think there's some, some snobbery there that's unwarranted? Well, I think literary fiction is a genre. And mostly when we talk about genres, we're, we're really talking about a marketing plan that helps readers find what they want in a bookstore or a library. I can, I completely agree there. And in the end, no one really gets to decide whose books are going to stick around and how they're going to be read. You know, some pretty terrific writers 
fall out of print. And some of them get rescued and some of them don't. Don Powell was one of the ones who was famously rescued in part because of this amazing, mostly because of this amazing biography by Tim Page. But there are definitely good writers who get lost. And there are definitely books that they're not going to outlive their time. They're not even probably going to last a decade. They're just not, they're, they're written on a very surface level. I think ideally the best books, the books I like to read are books that engage me on the level of storytelling. Like I would like to know what happens next now, but also are beautifully written and raise important ideas. There's a book out called Morningside Heights. It's the number one indie pick, which is a big deal. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Joshua Hankin is the writer. But something that cracked me up so much was I saw one of his blurbs that was delivered by a very good writer whom I admire. And it said, reads like a suspense novel. And I'm so tickled by the fact that one of the best things you can say about a literary novel is that it's a page turner. It was like, well, then how come the page? And so I guess the idea is that when it comes out of genre, it's a page turner, but that's all it is. And it's like, maybe. But by the way, a genre book that succeeds as a page turner has basically done its minimal job. And we have audiences who will be happy with that. It's, there are novels that attempt to be literary that fall short. And you don't even have the comfort of saying, well, at least it's a good story because it didn't even do that. So I don't worry about it. Um, we're all going to be dead. And this is, you know, this argument's still going to be going on. And it would be lovely if my books were in print for many decades, but I'm going to be dead. I'm not going to know. So I'm hopeful. I, I want to be read and I want my books to be experienced and talked about. And the thing that I feel is like the, the covenant is that that also means, though, I'm not going to argue with people on the Internet about my books. I'm not going to tell people my books are important and serious because maybe they're not. I mean, they, they're, they're different from reader to reader. There are people who read my books as sheer entertainment and they're happy for them and they put them down and they're like, didn't see that twist coming. And there are people who come to me and like, look, I, you know, I liked the fact that this was part of the story. Um, there are people who have read Dream Girl who feel that it has a lot to say about the Me Too movement and cancel culture and appropriation and, you know, whether novelists are kind of indefensible on some level. And there are people, there are people who read it and are like, they just want to know who's making this, these mysterious phone calls. Right. Well, there's the no wrong, there's no wrong way to read a book. And I am, I'm very clear that each individual reader has an individual experience with the book. And just because I wrote the book doesn't make me the expert. The person who's engaging with the book gets to define for them what the book is, even if they hate it. That is valid within that one-on-one -on -one relationship.
Well, and one of the fun things about novels is it can mean one thing to you when you read it now. And then in a couple of years, when a different cultural thing is going on, if you reread the book, you may pick up something new and different from it. It's it's almost like the book is a vehicle for uh, for I, I don't know what, but it, it's uh, it, it's not just a particular destination. It, it can lead you to all sorts of places. It's it's a mirror, and I just saw the most brilliant line on Twitter the other day, which is, you never reread the same novel twice. And at first I thought someone was saying no one re- reread. I'm like, wait, what? No, I read it all the time. And then I realized, no, every time you read a book, it yeah. will change for you. And I do a lot of rereading, which I know some people find crazy, but it's to me, it's a totally different experience than reading. Like reading is reading, and rereading is a kind of comfort food. I reread Marjorie Morningstar every year. I reread certain books from my childhood. I just like rereading. And yes, you're constantly finding something new. I mean, the whole reason Lady in the Lake existed was because I was doing my annual reread of Marjorie Morningstar. And I realized at the end of the book when, you know, the boy who worshipped her so and he was a younger teenager and she was a few years older and he never could get with her and he wanted her so much. And he goes out to meet her and he's like, oh, man, she looks like a grandmother. She's 39. She's 39 years old. And I, I began thinking about how, like, what, how would Marjorie tell the story of their final meeting? And what if, what if the next day she went off and did something amazing and life-changing and dramatic because seeing someone from her past reminded her of the other ambitions she had for herself. So it was almost like writing this alternative universe story is, you know, I, I mean, I guess some people could argue it's almost like an extremely sophisticated veiled version of fan fiction. What if Marjorie Morningstar actually was a housewife in Baltimore and decided she wanted to become a reporter? What would happen next? Laura, you know that it's a great novel when a character like Jerry becomes one of your favorite characters, even though you know that you might not like him very much. If that makes sense, that that you I know. love it. I, no, I'm hearing I'm hearing a lot of this kind of love hate stuff for Jerry. Yes, and yes. one of the things that I think that people are identifying with Jerry's awful. You know, right. let's not have he's he's so much more awful than he thinks he is because he thinks he's been good. Right, he right. He's been a wonderful person, which makes him even worse. But I think the place where Jerry does win a little bit of affection is that. I think a lot of people identify with that inner crank that, yeah. you know, I think a lot of us are walking around being a little cranky inside our heads. And when Jerry just is disgusted by someone not using English correctly or, you know, is out of, you know, has sort of this generational warfare with the millennials around him, I think, you know, <laughs> actually, I, one of the things I've laughed about, and I, I told someone this the other day, is I think part of the reason I was able to write this book is because I have a lot of really young friends. I mean, well, to start off, I have a 26-year-old stepson who I'm crazy about, and I think he and his girlfriend are two of the best people I know on the planet. So I don't see millennials in a very stereotypical way. And if anything, the millennials in my life are sometimes very gentle with me about you know, my kind of okay boomer moments. And the one that really <laughs> last year, I found that to my amazement, to my astonishment, 
that I had a pension from the Baltimore Sun. We had had a 401k plan when I was there, but I didn't think there was, and I had taken that with me when I left and rolled it over in new accounts. But it turned out I had this pension and it was, you know, not huge, but the Tribune company was basically saying, look, you know, you can take this in a lump sum now and roll it over into a 401k. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And I mentioned this to some young friends and one of them, you know, who works in media now said, Riley, what's a pension? And then the other one said, what's money? And I, I laughed and they reminded me that there was definitely some boomer privilege going on in that conversation. <laughs> Well, to me, um, Jerry was a lot like uh, when you meet a friend's, uh, you know, older uncle or something and you want to sit and talk with him just because he'll say stuff that you would never say. And it's just fun to listen to someone kind of unbridled and uninhibited, even though you cringe while listening to him, you, you still want to hear yeah. what, what they have to say. Yeah, of course, we have to be inside Jerry's head to get that perspective because right. he is canny enough not to say the bad part. Not, he doesn't say the quiet part out loud. He does know enough. He's just put out by it. He just doesn't have any patience for it. Love it. Dream Girl, if if you uh, love writers and love to to think about getting in the head of one dream girl is a must have for your summer reading. It's available everywhere. Now, when you're hearing this, we're going to put links to it in the show notes where you can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover or audio book. If you want to listen to the story come alive. Uh, I love the audio book. I got a, an early release from Harper Collins and it is amazing. And so I'm the reader is amazing. Yes. The reader for the audiobook is amazing. Yes. It is a must uh, have if you are an audible listener for sure. Um, Laura, if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the amazing stuff that you're involved in, where can they find you online? Well, I'm on Twitter under the handle of Laura M. Lippman, I believe. And I my avatar is a illustration of my great hero Ramona Quimby from the Beverly Cleary system series I'm on I'm on Facebook I have both a individual page and an author page I'm on Instagram it's the most neglected Instagram um, account <laughs> in history and I'm also at lauralitman.net excellent we'll link up all of those places to make it easy for folks to find you Laura, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you. I really had a fun time talking to you today. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.